0: So this morning we're going to continue our series that we've been looking at for the last few weeks. Actually, we're going to wrap up today. Uh, and next Sunday, of course, is Sunday before Christmas. And we're going to be looking at uh, Christmas passage and in our, in our talk together uh, next week. So um, we're going to be wrapping up our How Shall We Then Live um, here this morning. Uh, Being an engineer had always held a bit of a fascination for me in my childhood and adolescent years. As a boy, I I first dreamed about being a locomotive uh, engineer. We lived close to the main CN uh, rail line, and as I watched these great diesel-powered machines rumble by on the, uh, the rails on their way to some distant destination, I imagined being at the controls Watching the countryside whiz by me, the wind blowing in my face as I made my way to some exciting location away from home. Uh, my grade six teacher put a serious dent in my imagination, however, when he informed me that trains have schedules to keep and that I just couldn't go merrily along on my, at my own speed. Then as I entered high school, my interest shifted toward a a little more conventional form of engineering, and I began to explore the field of civil engineering. I imagined creating great structures and planning, uh, welcoming communities, linking disconnected regions with road and bridge networks, all of this, of course, environmentally friendly. (laughs) Then I was hit with a shot of reality. When I barely passed one of the core courses for entrance into a university engineering program, my ability to grasp some of the basic concepts of connecting materials in order to realize productive outcomes rocked my world. About that time, my imaginations began to shift as God brought into my life people, circumstances, and the power of His Word. And I began to, uh, began thinking more seriously about the me that God imagined. To come to the belief that God actually has given a great deal of thought on how we live our lives is critical to living fully and freely. For the past several weeks, we have been exploring what life from God's perspective looks like. This may be a good time to repeat the scripture text that has directed us in our exploration. Again, Second Peter chapter 1, I'm going to read verses 3 to 6. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life or life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these he has given us his very great and precious promises, so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. For this reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and to self-control perseverance, and to perseverance godliness. What does it mean to add godliness to faith based living. What does godliness look like? And and how do we know if we are attaining this level of livelihood? Well Peter pretty well sums up what God has in mind for us in these words in his first epistle. He wrote, But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, Be holy, because I am holy. Now, Peter is quoting here from the Old Testament book of Leviticus, where God made this exact same statement to the children of Israel. It has always been God's intention to have people in this world who reflect his character. He imagines you and me to be these people. And so the me God imagines is a person who reflects his divine nature and priorities in how I live. Eugene Peterson lets his imagination go a bit when he interprets Peter's call to holy living in this way and the message. As obedient children, let yourselves be pulled into a way of life shaped by God's life, a life energetic and blazing with holiness. Now, before you hyperventilate over the thought of actually living at this level of holiness, keep this in mind. The idea behind this call to holy living comes from a relationship with God that belongs, that those who belong to Him have, those who are His children. There is a connection made here that is similar to the way that our children reflect the characteristics of their parents. A while ago, Janie asked me somewhat out of the blue whether I thought our daughter was more like her or like me. Well, like any self-respecting father, the first thought that came to mind was that her good looks, her her intelligence and pleasing nature were, of course, just like me. (laughs) But then I thought better. And so I asked Janie what, what prompted her to ask. This led to a discussion about how both of our personalities can be seen in our daughter. Now, Michelle may or may not have given any thought to this question. However, the fact that she is our daughter means that she possesses a natural bent towards behaving like us. With or without her recognition, she will reflect what what she has come to observe in us and genetically received from us. And so God, like any self-respecting heavenly father, will see to it that we have the capacity as his children to reflect his holy character. He looked at this right from the get, we looked at this rather right from the get go on, on these talks about imagining what God has in mind for us by looking at what Peter says. Peter tells us his divine, that is God's divine nature, has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. And so goodness is what happens when we give credible recognition to being image bearers of God's nature. This image-bearing of God's nature has two parts to it. First of all, there's, there's God's part. Peter tells us that God has made available to us all that is required to live a life pleasing to Him. So how has he done this? Well, initially, he does this by a total remake of our nature. Jesus had a long conversation with a Jewish religious leader named Nicodemus about this divine action. This conversation can be found in John's Gospel in the third chapter. Jesus likened this change that God works in us to being reborn. And Nicodemus, with somewhat tongue-in-cheek, I'm sure, asked if this meant entering back into his mother's uterus to be born again, well, he would be just out of luck. Jesus responded by informing Nicodemus that the birth he was speaking about had nothing to do with natural birth. Jesus was talking about being born into God's family, and this is a supernatural accomplishment carried out by God's Spirit. This is God's part. Through this act of God, we become a totally new person with a new disposition. We now have the God-given capacity to behave in a manner that reflects God-likeness. We have been birthed from above by God, and we now reflect the nature of our heavenly parent. This is a key understanding for us to grasp. Before godliness is something we do, it is something we are. Godliness in its purest and simplest form is simply reflecting the nature of the one who has given us new birth. It is embracing the change that has happened to us and going with it in all of our life's situations. This radical change that happens to us when we submit to God's call upon our lives and surrender ourselves to his keeping has been called a conversion experience. Now the work of conversion and the corresponding word convert have all but been dropped from church talk these days. But conversion is a good way of describing what takes place when God transforms us into a child of His. In many ways, conversion has become commonplace, a commonplace occurrence in our everyday living. There is an app for my iPhone that allows me to convert weight and currency and temperature and numerous other measurements into units that I can understand. When I am driving in the U.S., it tells me exactly what speed I should be traveling in kilometers per hour when the world around me is traveling in miles per hour. Now, whether I pay attention to that is quite another matter. But conversion helps us function in a knowledgeable and safe manner when dealing in a realm of unfamiliarity. The fact of the matter is that what God has in mind for us is so far beyond our capacity to grasp that we need a conversion to happen within us so that we can proceed knowledgeably in God-ordered space. Now, whether we as converts pay attention or not is another matter, which brings me to a consideration of our part in the pursuit of godliness. Our conversion experience, where God births us into his family and imparts his nature to us, happens instantaneously. When we confess our belief in Jesus as the one who forgives us of our sin and brings transformational change, this new creation that God has in mind, we immediately become children of God and participants in his divine nature. Now the result of this miraculous and mysterious work of God are to become evident in how we live. This way of living that God imagines becomes a lifelong pursuit for us. The assurance of finding our way in this journey comes from Peter's declaration that God has made available to us all that we require to lead lives that please Him. So what does that look like? Well, to be sure, we are expected to behave differently. There is a clear behavioral pattern for believers that is set out in the scriptures. However, my observation is that we can easily become caught up in arguing about what this behavioral pattern should look like. We attempt to systemize it. And so although I do not want to deny that as Christians we are to act differently than we did before we placed our faith and hope in Christ, I want to explore the pursuit of godliness from another perspective. The word godliness is how the Greek word eusebia is most often translated in our English versions of the Bible. The original word is used by Peter, as used by Peter more literally means good worship. Good worship. Here we gain a revealing clue into how we are to go about pursuing godliness. Godliness results from a devoted pursuit of God in pure worship. Now this is to be our focus when we come to this place on Sunday mornings. So let me ask you this question. Is it? Is it? Or are you... Are you you most conscious of engaging with God in an act of unadulterated reverence and the possibility of being changed by delighting in His presence? Or do you come distracted by unmet expectations or preferences? Let me put before us the holy expectation of encountering God in this place and the preferred experience of being changed by Him. Now, having said that, Good worship is not limited to what happens for an hour or so on Sunday mornings in what we have called the worship service. When we think about good worship, we must consider how we interact with God on the other 167 hours of the week. Worship of God is not a -a once-a-week event. It is a lifestyle. Godliness resulting from good worship comes when our whole personality is completely set Upon God, his kingdom values, his purposes, his character. It is a God-centeredness that shapes us from the inside out. When this happens, then what Peterson imagines in his attempt to capture the apostles' intent becomes reality for us. As obedient children, let yourselves be pulled into a way of life shaped by God's life. A life energetic and blazing with holiness. The goal in godliness is to get to the place where we simply allow the nature of our Heavenly Father to show up in us. Well, in case you are still having difficulty in figuring out more exactly what that is like, an example of godliness at its best may be helpful. And so I'd like to explore that with you. The Apostle Paul, in speaking about godliness, used the same word that Peter used ten times in what are typically referred to as his pastoral letters. Epistles that he wrote to two young pastors that he was especially mentoring, Timothy and Titus. In his letter to Timothy, in a section where he described the qualifications for church leaders, he included this statement. Beyond all question, the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. Now, after making this observation, he then goes on to personify godliness with a specific reference to Jesus. And so he continues on in that same verse, Beyond all question, the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. He appeared, speaking of Jesus, he appeared in the flesh, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. When it comes to knowing what godliness looks like, we need look no further than Jesus. Paul outlines six ways in which Jesus displayed godliness that have a corresponding implication, I think, for us. And just before I launch into this, I just want to say that the next part of my talk, I have actually uh, printed off. There are a few copies here if you want to receive one afterwards so you don't have to madly write or try to take pictures of the screen uh, to get all of this. First of all, Paul says, Jesus appeared in a human body. That is, he came personally to bring God's presence to us, to live among us. The godly have the endearing capacity to make God personal. They are able to connect the dots between life as we know it and God's involvement in the course of our experiences. They bring heaven down to our earthly endeavors. When you are in their presence, you just know that God is near. And then Paul says, Jesus was vindicated by the Spirit. He left the defense of his righteous character to the justice and holiness of God. The godly have an enormous capacity to leave matters of being unjustly treated, falsely accused, painfully betrayed in the hands of God. They understand that in a fallen and broken world, abuse and misuse are inevitable. With purposeful resolve, they trust the Spirit of God to preserve their integrity and bring about vindication when necessary in God's time and God's place. And then thirdly, Paul says, Jesus was seen by angels. The life of Jesus was observed with holy awe by the heavenly beings who brought him God's peace and protection. The godly live with a keen sense. "...of the heavenly realm. They know both God's angels and the dark forces of, of the evil one are watching them. And so they conduct themselves in ways that make angels cheer and demons quake. Fourthly, Jesus was preached among the nations. Jesus is good news, proclaimed intentionally throughout the world. The godly do not shy away from proclamation when it comes to living out the gospel of Christ." They know what to say when an opportunity to speak about their faith presents itself. They have schooled themselves in the practice identified by Peter in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 15-16. to 16. Be ready to speak up and tell anyone who asks you why you are living the way you are, and always with the utmost courtesy. Keep a clear conscience before God, so that when people throw mud at you, none of it will stick. They'll end up realizing that they're the ones who need a bath. Fifthly, Jesus was believed on in the world. Jesus brought credibility to God's eternal plan for humanity. The godly understand that they are in the world by God's design. They don't stand back and let poverty and injustice and evil prevail. They get involved in bringing about redemptive perspective to community and global crises, They give it credence to their faith by their works. And then finally, Paul says, Jesus was taken up in glory. Jesus lived on earth with the end in mind, the restoration of the glory of God and the completion of his redemptive work. The godly live with the hope of heaven. They are solidly grounded in their earthly existence, but know that this earth is not their final destination. They live for the day when Jesus will come and take them to be with him forever. The treasure they value the most is stored up for them in heaven. This is godliness at its best. Jesus, the author and perfecter of godly living, our hope, our help, our salvation. Well, there's one more use of the word godliness in the scripture that needs to be addressed as we wrap up here today. The Apostle Paul uses it in connection with a warning. Again, he speaks to this matter in his letter to Timothy. He tells him to be on guard against having a form of godliness, but denying its power. Paul issues the warning that it is possible to put on a good show when it comes to Christian living, but reject the power that leads to godliness. And with a strong declaration, he says, do not live like that. And so, as we conclude today, it's time for a reality check. How are you doing with adding godliness? to your faith walk? What do you feel most when it comes to living a holy life, powerless or empowered? Is Jesus merely on your lips or deeply established in the center of your life? The reality is this. God has more on His mind for you than you can possibly imagine. Something in keeping with His divine nature. Sure, there may be days when you wonder just what that may look like. There are times when I think about those building and bridges and communities that never got built, but really only rarely, because I've caught sight of a greater possibility, a possibility that exists for engineers and pastors and machinists and teachers and truck drivers and homemakers and dentists and students. I want to be the me that God imagines. I want to be holy and godly. Let's pray. And so, Father, as we have looked at this topic this morning, it may be that there is within our hearts, within our response, that's just beyond my capacity. I just cannot live in that way, and that's exactly true. You have not called us to be holy and then said, okay, figure it out on yourself, by yourself. You've called us to be holy because you have placed your divine nature in us. And so becoming holy is allowing you to live your life through us. In some ways, by getting out of the way and inviting you by your spirit to live your life in us and through us. Sure, this, this is mysterious. We don't can't get our heads around it, maybe totally. But Father, this is reality. This is what you have said you would do for us. You have given us all that we need to live godly lives. You've placed your spirit within us. You have created your nature As miraculously as you created Jesus in the womb of Mary, you have created miraculously your spirit, your nature in us so that we might reflect your being. And so help us to grasp this and to live it out. And we'll thank you because we know that you are good and godly and holy and you have our best interests at in heart. And so we just say thank you in the name of Jesus. Amen.